Welcome to Empowered by Women for Women. This podcast brings you inspirational women and their stories, their successes, and their experiences along the way. Join us to be challenged and inspired. Brought to you by Invintage and hosted by myself, Trudy Kerr. Dr. Maria Pisani is, among other things, a senior lecturer at the University of Malta within Youth and Community Studies and the Faculty for Social Wellbeing. Maria was also head of office for the International Organization for Migration and during this time was responsible for a number of key projects related to refugee resettlement and human trafficking, amongst other areas. This also relates to Maria's position as co-founder and director of Integra Foundation, an organization set up in 2004 with the aim of facilitating the integration of minority groups in Malta, providing community service, outreach and English classes to refugees and asylum seekers on a voluntary basis, as well as working with the International Organization for Migration. Maria, welcome. Wow, I think we have a huge show ahead. Thank you so much for being with me here on Empowered. It's lovely to be here. It's fantastic to have you here. And I'm really looking forward to discussing the topics that relate to what I've just talked about. But before we go there, you're really well known and synonymous with migration and social justice. But let's go back to how this started, because that's a very specific area to take your career into. So how did you become passionate about this? How did you decide that's where you wanted to go? I haven't spoken about this in so long. Um, I mean, I'd have to go back to adolescence. I was brought up in the UK, um, Maltese to Maltese parents, and um, always felt a bit different. I was always, I think, my interest in social justice issues um, emerged at quite a young age, and and also my interest in politics uh, at a very young age. I used to fight with my parents to be able to stay up to watch the news where everybody else was fighting to stay, I don't know, watch some film or whatever. The films were very limited in those days, (laughs) I have to say, on the TV. Or blankety blank. I'll be like, I want to watch the news. Um, so, so it started at a very young age. I actually left school at the age of 16 when I came to Malta. Um, and then I returned to education and went, and went to university as a mature student. By that point, I already had three children and, and, and another one along the way. So it was quite hectic. And I applied for the course in youth and community studies, um, which was the only course that was available in the evenings. And, and that's, why I, that's why I did that course, because it was the only one. But I loved it. I loved it from day one. And that sort of threw me into social issues. And I started working as a drugs community worker with SETA. Um, I worked with um, young mothers for a short period of time with unemployed youth. Um, And it was while I was with SETA, though, and I loved that work, that by then the asylum seekers had just started coming to Malta. and, And I was interested in the area. And set a formed part of um, the foundation and with Apoch, and I knew that Apoch were establishing the first department um, that was going to focus on asylum seekers and refugees. So I requested a transfer, and I my first 
job with refugees was running the first open center in, in Halfa, in, in Malta, the first one, the, the first open center in Malta, which was a black baptism of fire, really. I mean, I said I wanted to work with refugees, but I had no idea what that meant in, in real terms. I was very, very ignorant of, of the topic. And I think, you know, I think it would be fair to say that we all were, really. Um, we were all learning as we were getting along. Um, well, very different times. Yeah, I mean, to timestamp this, when I came to Malta 16 years ago, and one of the things that was very profound for me was that there was not very many ethnically different people in Malta. They were, they, the migration that we see now wasn't happening back then. So timestamp, what we're talking about. So I'm speaking about 2004. Um, but, yeah. but, it, but, even, but even that, I think it needs to be historically contextualized a little bit as well. Up until that time, Malta, um, the history of, well, I mean, Malta, uh, positioned in the middle of the Mediterranean, has been a crossroads for migration for, for thousands of years. If you look at our uh, the diversity of 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 of, of Malteseness, our language, our architecture, our, um, our the food that we eat, the the, the festas, the certain terminologies, they're all a reflection of of these migration movements. Um, but up until the late 1990s, Malta was a country of emigration in, in the last couple of hundred years in, in particular. After the Second World War, Malta experienced the highest percentage of emigration that any country had experienced up until Which that time. People leaving. people leaving. I'm Maltese. My parents are both Maltese. My nunno was Maltese, but my nunno was in the British Army because of the colonial um, history of Malta, and my dad the same. And so I'm a returned Maltese migrant, born in Germany, but I was born Maltese at birth. And then I came back at the age of 16. So, so that's when we started to see this shift in migration patterns, from one of emigration to one of immigration. Up until that point, I think the majority of migrants living in Malta were British. Um, many of them had retired here. Many of them, um, as a result of marriage, from when the um, the military was here as well, so that you had Maltese that married British soldiers and left, and others that settled here. And then... Um, but by this time, Malta was moving towards joining the EU, and slowly we started, slowly we started seeing um, shifts in, in migration patterns. Immigration from um, EU countries and these arrivals of predominantly sub-Saharan Africans in those days, um, crossing the Mediterranean from the coast of Libya and arriving in Malta and applying for asylum. So up until that point, Point, although we had a history of, of, of migration, a very rich history, I would say we were a more homogeneous society. Um, then I would say, well, these, the sub-Saharan African arrivals across the Mediterranean continued with some ups and downs according to the political context and, and have done much, so for two decades now. And very much influenced by the fact that Malta is part of the EU. Access into Europe can now be achieved through Malta. Well, the, the arrivals started happening a little bit prior to Malta joining the EU. That is one factor, but it's certainly not the only factor. I mean, if I was to look at life in Malta, 
in, in, at, at that time. Malta was also going through very dramatic change. And we started to witness um, an intensification of migration across the board, within the region and globally as well. Today, many, many more people are, are migrating. Of course, still not the majority of people, but more people are migrating. Also as a result of technological changes. So for example, I, you know, asylum seekers started arriving. Well, I was running around with a Nokia 3310 in, in those days. And, and a few asylum seekers would arrive with, with mobile phones, but the, but the vast majority wouldn't. Fast forward 10 years, and we're using the internet, and, and uh, a little bit more than that, and we're using smartphones. So obviously, that facilitates migration across the board. You would have to look at it not just within the geopolitical, but also other changes that are going on at the same time. Keeping in mind as well that the vast, vast majority of asylum seekers who reach Europe are across the Mediterranean from, from um, the coast of North Africa are young men. Young men engaged in youth culture, more engaged in, with technology as well. So all of this factors in as, as well, I would say. Well, you mentioned this about migrants, immigrants. You mentioned also about people coming to Malta who, from the UK, coming to retire. And let's face it, there are some migrants that are acceptable, and there are some that aren't. I myself am a migrant. I chose Malta because I wanted to choose a better life for myself. So 16 years ago, I came here and I made this my home. Ukraine displaced migrants right now are being welcomed with open arms and offered housing immediately because of the crisis uh, and the conflict in Ukraine. But migrants from Africa, you just mentioned this, in sub-Saharan Africa, and also the Middle East, aren't so easily welcomed. And although we do seem to have these migrants happy, come and clean our streets, come and pick up our rubbish, we like them to be sort of hidden. Why? Why is this the case? Why am I welcomed and somebody who's coming from a conflict in sub-Saharan Africa is just deemed worthy of, of cleaning streets? Well, migration, like everything else, is not only gendered. I, I've already described uh, an, an example of how migration flows are gendered, but also racialized. And again, this isn't something new. If I look at the history of emigration, to, um, the Maltese emigrants who moved to Australia were able to do so because they were British citizens, part of the uh, part of empire. But at the same time, Australia had a white Australia policy and tried to ban Maltese from, um, from traveling to Australia because they were, what we say, is constructed as colored. So the Maltese were pe perceived as colored and thus inferior and, and not wanted. You're serious? I'm very serious. And it's something when? When? Uh, what time period? Um, well, in the last century over the last hundred years, and it's well documented as well. So we can see certain patterns. Now, let me start by saying the response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis is amazing, and it's one that I think we should acknowledge and, and, and embrace, and, and um, there's a lot more that we need to do, but, but, but I celebrate what we are doing. Um, this, is a, uh, this is how it should be, but I cannot but feel, I don't know, I don't have the words actually. I really struggle, I struggle with it big time. We did not see the same response to 
asylum seekers and refugees, people forced to flee their homes. Um, the most, of course, the, the one that was the most visible was the Syrian movements across the Mediterranean in 2015. But of course, not just the Syrians who have not been treated in the same way. Now, why do people, why, why do we have laws? Let's start with that. Why do we have laws around asylum in, in the first place? And, and, and what do we mean by migration and, and, and even illegal migration? And I'm using the term, I'm doing flying inverted commas right now for the term illegal. I mean, ultimately, when I want to travel, when you want to travel, I log on, it doesn't matter where it is in the world, I have one of the most powerful passports in the world as a multi-citizen, and I can essentially go wherever I want to go. With that passport, I have access to every corner of this planet. What we are asking for is not that people have more than this, simply that people have the same rights as, not I, as that I don't only enjoy, but that I take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. I, that, that everyone is able to enjoy the open borders that I am able to enjoy. I'd like to live in a world, I think, where those that really really need to flee because of danger, because they, the people that are migrating, not because they have fallen in love or because they want an adventure or because they just want to improve their lives as every human being wants to do, but those people that are forced to flee their home because their home is no longer safe, that they be, be granted, if you like, the golden passport to travel. Not no passport, but the golden passport. They should be at the front of the queue. And essentially, the 1951 Geneva Convention, um, which was established after the Second World War, was established for that reason. It, it, it's a way of acknowledging that those people that need to flee their home should be able to do so in a way that is protected. So it is a, a fundamental human right. But unfortunately, today, um, not just in Malta, those people who are fleeing particularly from the global south, it is harder and harder for them to be able to travel in a safe and legal way. They're not able to board a plane. They're not able to access a visa. So they are what we call illegalized. They are forced to travel illegally. Now, the Geneva Convention acknowledges that, that they may have to travel in an illegal way. Um, and, and the Geneva Convention essentially states that the state has the right to, to, the, to allow them access because they, there was no alternative. There was no alternative in this case because we took that alternative away. So, so what we are witnessing more and more is the militarization of our borders rather than open borders and doing everything in our power to prevent refugees from arriving and seeking safety elsewhere. It's a different story with the Ukrainians, and you have to factor in race and the legacy of, of racism and how it impacts persons of color around the world um, well, in know, many, many ways. You talk about this because this is, for me, impacted me when my parents wrote, voted for the UK to of leave yes. the European Union. Because, and when I asked my, my mother why, she said, because we don't want any more illegal immigrants. 
Now, just a couple of days ago, and I'm not knocking my mother, but I, she was talking about how fantastic it was that, that the UK was, had changed its mind and it was embracing so many Ukrainians. And I've recently been very close to where Ukrainians are fleeing from the crisis there. And I'm not, as, as we said, you know, anyone embracing someone who's fleeing from a conflict zone, it's a great, it's a great thing to do. But the very fact of the matter is that to my mother was acceptable immigration and refugee uh, action. But somebody who's coming from a conflict in Somalia or Rwanda or Syria or Afghanistan is not deemed to be as human. And this you're saying is just basic racism. It's racism. Now, what do we mean by racism? So if, if, we, if we go back to the 19th century, um, human beings were, were placed on a hierarchy and categorized according to race. And as I already described, the Maltese were nowhere near the top of this hierarchy. This hierarchy that was generally based on physiological features um, also determined their sort of how civilized they were or savage the, the, the individual is according to their race, how intelligent, not just how intelligent they are, but the, how intelligent they can be. In other words, that every human being is determined by their race. Now, of course, since then, science has completely thrown that theory out of the window. There is one human race. But the legacy of, of, of racism um, is still very much with us. Now, when I talk about racism, I'm not talking about hatred. I'm not saying that um, uh, when, we, when we listen to, to racist discourse that this is necessarily grounded in, in hatred. I think the vast majority of people don't want to see people dying in the Mediterranean. I don't think that at all. But there is some kind of underlying belief that we have learned over time, and the messages are, are, are constant in, in our media, in our films, in the books that we've read, they are everywhere. The, per the, the persons of color are inferior to us and have also been constructed as a threat. Just as we, as Maltese, I'm speaking as a Maltese person now, were also constructed as inferior and a threat to white Australia. And this is what we are seeing, I think, in Europe today, not just in Europe, of course, um, and certainly this is what we see in Malta. So that, for example, my children, when they were growing up in Malta, they were, first of all, brought up in a, in a, in a society that referred to clandestine and illegal immigrants across the board. The term illegal immigrant became synonymous with black person, and, and asylum became synonymous with crime. Um, and we can see how this language has fed into our policies and how our policies, despite the fact that they continue to violate rights and basic laws, continue and are somehow excused and, and justified. And they are justified because they are couched within this racialization. Maria, where are all the women in this situation? You mentioned about young men. Yes. Being identified as the majority of immigrants, illegal immigrants or asylum seekers, as we would use those terms, that are coming in, into, in, into Malta, into Europe. But 
but surely there's women as well. There's women who are also fleeing. And in the case of Ukraine, it mm -hmm. is the women, the women and children that absolutely. Um, so just like everything else, migration is gendered. Let's look at the Ukrainian context right now. Um, and, and I think it would be interesting to also frame this conversation within patriarchy. And, and as a feminist, we, we, we use the term patriarchy um, to understand how society is structured. It and what a, does that exactly mean? So essentially what we're saying is how society is structured according to certain expectations based on sex and gender that in the main tend to privilege the males, but not all the time. And we can see how it also affects men negatively. I would refer to feminism, rather than being a feminist, I would refer to feminism as a movement that seeks to create the possibilities for every human being to be the best that they can possibly be and to eradicate any structure that prevents them from doing so across the genders. So if we look at Ukraine right now, we, we know that young men, of a, I don't, I'm not exactly sure of the age, but um, I, I should assume it's from teenagers, late teenagers, probably up to, I'm not sure, it could be 50s, I'm not sure, I'm not sure of the exact age. They're expected to remain and to fight. And that we can understand through patriarchy. Whether they want to fight or not, they're expected to be strong and they're expected to remain. Women can choose to, but they can leave. And we can see because of the role of the woman as caregiver, the women are leaving with the children. Older people tend to remain, not all of them obviously, but older people, people who don't have access, don't have money and access to resources, don't have family members to support them, who may have been isolated within a community already, persons with a disability who don't have support, and here I would include older people as well. It is physically impossible for them to make the journey in many cases, um, and again, de de determined by their access to resources, how much money they have, people they know with cars, whether or not they can drive themselves or have their own car, that will, to a, to a considerable degree, dictate whether or not whether or not they can leave and how they leave do they leave um, with you know 10 jerry cans of, of, of petrol in their own car do they have to walk um, do they have money to stay in places along the way do they have contacts in Malta or in Europe elsewhere to help them so th these are the resources that we all tap into and obviously the poorer you are the more isolated you are the, the less you can tap into these possibilities. And we can see these gendered flows. So predominantly the women and women and children who are fleeing the context. Now, in the case of sub-Saharan Africa, where you have wars in Somalia, um, uh, well, uh, across really the, the, the conflicts in Eritrea and the persecution in Sudan, there are many that I could be speaking about. When I, just a couple of years ago, I, I was in Kakuma just before COVID and I met, I, met, I was there to work with young people and, and some of the young people that I, that I met there have been living in Kakuma all of their life. And, and Kakuma is? Kakuma is a refugee camp in Kenya. Um, it, it houses 
hundreds and thousands of, 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 of refugees. So some of the young refugees have lived there all of their lives. So let's put some things into context. The vast majority of the world's refugees live in the poorest countries in the world, in the global south. It's a tiny percentage that make it to Europe or perhaps other parts of the world, a, a, a drop in the ocean in, in comparison. And that is for a number of reasons, including what we call containment policies and doing everything we can to keep them in the global south. The journey to, to make it to North Africa is a very dangerous one. Many, many people die in the Sahara Desert along the way. The women who make the journey, and it's around 13%, so it's a very low percentage, for many different reasons. First of all, the responsibility is generally on the young man to make it to Europe to be able to send remittances back to their family. We can see how patriarchy is working here again. It's also gendered. The violence that they're exposed to, you need to be strong. You need to be able to More access violence. Um, violence at borders, violence as a result of war and conflict, rape being used as a, as a weapon of war. It is the, the majority of women who make the journey are raped during the journey. Many men are also raped during the journey, and it's, much, it's very difficult for them to, to be able to talk about it. So um, it, it's... It's, it's a tough journey. It's a tough journey. And you need to be strong. So the most physically strong are young men. Those that are young men are also the, um, those that are going to be able to, to tap into certain resources in a way that young women cannot. Negotiating a border, for example, negotiating with the militia. The journey, not just when they, even when they arrive in Malta, it's gendered, but the journey that gets them here, and the reason why they take that decision and why it's young men and not women, not younger women, is also gendered, just like everything else in life. But you're describing this journey, and if you're a family group in a, a refugee camp in Kenya, and you decide that you have a better prospect of making it if one of your family members leaves Kenya and travels up through Africa, then manages to find them, and, and North Africa gets themselves across the Sahara to North Africa, manages to find some, some vessel and takes that journey across the Mediterranean, and then looks for an opportunity to earn money to send back to the family in Kenya. For that individual, that is a huge risk. From what you're describing about the possibility of violence, of rape, of abuse, possible death. So why is it that we still think that these migrants that come are going to come to our country and take our jobs and they, they're just here for a free ride? Because isn't that what a lot of people think? Yes, but that's what they've been told. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think as long as we're using the illegal black body as a scapegoat... Well, my anger is directed towards him rather than elsewhere. But if these, if these young men are leaving their families, surely the young women in these refugee camps are at risk as well? The, in, in the refugee camps, what they face is... Um, <laughs> is a life in the camp. Um, I mean, that is what they've been brought up with, and, and they are not allowed to leave 
the camp. Um, they're, they're, it's a containment policy within the camp. When I was in Kenya, in Kakuma camp, um, and, I, and I, was, I spent quite a lot of time there, a lot of the young people were watching Netflix in, in Kakuma, and they were watching Money Heist. And I, at the same time, I was getting messages from my partner, and who was really into watching Money Heist. Um, and it was just really interesting to know that, you know, that, that on opposite sides of the world, with very different realities, that they were watching, at the same time, the same series. This is globalization. So the young people in Kakuma, what I'm saying is, is they are able to see the images that we see, they have a certain idea of what Europe is. Of course, it's not a reality, but again, we can look at the colonial legacy, Europe um, associated with um, protecting human rights of, of, of certain progress, money, style. There's certain things that they aspire to be. We sell it, don't we? We package it. I mean, it's all packaged with a big bow. And like any other person, like any other young person, they want a better life. And they are seeing these images and they know that they have, they're, they're bright, they're intelligent, they, they have attended school in, in the camps, but they have no way to use their skills and knowledge while they're there. So they will look for an opportunity to leave and leave they do, not all of them, not, not, not by any, um, is, is, a, is a small minority. But in order for them to be able to seek a better life elsewhere, they are forced, they have no alternative, but to travel through illegal routes. And this, you, you mentioned before, is predominantly men. Predominantly men. But there are men. some women that travel as well. There is. And it sounds to me that for a woman, it's also an incredibly frightening journey. It's a very, very dangerous journey. And, and so obviously it's young women who make the journey. When I first started studying in the field of, of forced migration, my focus was always on, on young women um, and, and how they navigated this, this process and dealt with the dangers that they faced on a day-to-day -day basis. But these women must come when they arrive here in Malta, even if it's only 13%, they must be traumatized. Yes, they are. But I wouldn't say that that trauma defines them. They're also incredibly resilient, strong, hopeful. Um, you know, they've, they've been through so much, by the, I mean, more than either of us can imagine, by the time they get here. And then they're, they, they, they're crossing the Mediterranean and either they're picked up and, and brought to Malta or, you know, in the past they also arrived on the dinghies, whatever. They've reached Europe. I used to call it the Dick Whittington syndrome, believing that, you know, Malta, that Malta is part of Europe and, and paved in gold. And they're immediately placed in detention for months on end, um, including unaccompanied minors, so children under the age of 18. And, and you know, I was, I was saying just a, a couple of days ago, my students, when they start the degree course with us, they, they, when I speak about detention and how we are illegally detaining, and, and, and have been for a number of years now, they always look with horror and, and say, but I didn't know. It has become so normalized, so normalized, that we have a detention policy that is hugely problematic, um, violates rights. We keep refugees contained in, in horrible circumstances, and it is there 
That is where they break. It is there. That is where they break. And then when they're eventually released, at the moment people are released from detention, and some of them are awaiting an asylum outcome for three years, their lives on hold as they await the decision as to whether they can remain in Malta or not. It is this that drains them of a, hope is the last to die, isn't it? That is what we do through these dehumanizing policies. Marie, you're very outspoken about these issues and what you believe in. Do you, as a woman or just as a human being, face opposition to what you are trying to achieve, what you're trying, the change that you're trying to bring about? I have done over the years, but but not something that's going to stop me from doing what I what I do. And and um, you know, I, I I genuinely believe. You know, it, the thing is, the thing is, Trudy, it it can sound very complex, can't it? Well, you know, I start talking about human rights law and detention and all these different policies that make no sense, and it's a complex geopolitical context. It's been going on for years, and how many people are we going to, you know, how many people are we going to mourn thousands upon thousands in the Mediterranean? It stops being news. This is how sad it is. It stops being news. But I think the average person is, I, I truly believe that the average person is a decent person, and we're able to, to recognize when something is just, and when something isn't just, when something is fair, and when something isn't fair. And do, you, do you really think so? Yeah, because, I do. Because, I, because here's my point. A couple of weeks ago, Pope Francis came to Malta and was welcomed with open arms. And one of the things on his agenda was to go and visit those people that had fled to Malta. And he made it a point of saying that we have to embrace those who come to our shores because they need to, because they're fleeing from somewhere else, because we need to give them refuge, we need to give them a home. Whilst there was a ship out in the Maltese waters that was being turned away, do you really think that we can change the way people are, whether it be through policy, whether it be through law, but most importantly, through opinion? I have to believe, because if I don't believe, then I won't be able to continue to do the things that, that I do. And I have to continue, I mean, and I'm doing nothing compared to other people. Let's be, let's be very clear, you know, I mean, there are other people that are doing much, much more than me. I genuinely believe, even the Pope, even the Pope who came here and his message was very clear, couldn't, drown out is the wrong word in this context, but decades of political discourse that uh, has been continuous and across the board, regardless of who was in government. I'm not interested in red or blue. This has been going on across the board for two decades. Um, the, the detention policy, the racism, the way everything is framed within this um, discourse around invasion and protecting our culture and and which I'm sorry is is ridiculous and I can and I can speak more about this as well it's very difficult to drown for us to be to be heard over all of that noise and and I genuinely believe that the majority of people know they don't want to see people drowning in the Mediterranean they don't want to see children locked up where no crime no crime has been committed and even if it was frankly children really pregnant women really 
Really? I don't think the average person in the street understands what's going on, or they've somehow managed to convince or been convinced that this is somehow justified because they, um, they're a threat. They're no more a threat than the Ukrainian refugee. The only difference is that one has the possibility to travel, or we've facilitated the possibility, rightly so, let me be clear, to be able to travel across borders, and the others have been denied that possibility. And then, of course, the other difference is the racialization. Scary black man, innocent white woman. I'm going to ask you to close this incredibly powerful episode of Empowered by providing a statement that you feel would be the most relevant and powerful way of demonstrating how we need to change our views. I mean, because some of the things that you've just said about children being held in detention for, for three years or, or I mean, this is, this is insane. This is incredible. Children being detained for months, awaiting an asylum process for three years and more. But if you're going to give me one more statement, then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about one story. Um, because maybe you know, we can't change the structures or it's going to take a lot longer to change the structures but, um, and the policies. But there are three young men in Malta who I believe, and I'm not alone in this, face, uh, are facing continue to face a horrible injustice. They're known as the El Hiblu Three. You can Google it and learn much more about them, or hashtag El Hiblu Three, who have been accused, um, well, when they were making their journey to Malta, one was 16, the other one, no, one was 15, one was 16, and one was 19. And they have been accused of terrorism, of piracy, they face years in prison. They are still going through a drawn out, painful law, a legal process um, that is incredibly stressful. They were picked out by the captain and asked to translate for the other passengers, because one of them in particular could speak English, because the, the captain was going to take them back to Libya. And that would have been a, not just a clear violation of, of international law, but a violation we would have been, in sending them back, we would have been violating them. I think I, I, this is something that I, I keep, it's not about, it's wrong to violate laws, but we are violating them. We are violating these individuals. So I'll close this by asking every one of your listeners to please Google the El Hiblu Three. Learn about the injustice that they are facing, and 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 just say no, just say no. We're asking for the charges against them to be dropped. It is the right thing to do. It is the just thing to do. What did they do? They translated for the passengers of a vessel. Uh, they were sorry. They were picked up by a vessel um, in in the Mediterranean. They were told that they were going to be taken to Malta but the captain was instructed to return them to Libya, which was a war zone at that time. So the captain was essentially instructed to violate international human rights law and send them back. In the morning, the passengers of the, on, the, on, the, on the vessel woke up, realized that they were very close to the Libyan coast. They became agitated and scared. Some of them tried to jump off the boat because they knew what they were being sent back to. 
Um, and these three teenagers managed to calm them down and they translated between the captain and the passengers and the captain agreed to bring them to Malta. Now they're being charged with piracy. It's ridiculous. Um, I, I cannot tell you. In a recent interview I had with René Resignon talking about the Ukrainian crisis, for the interviewer, he said very clearly, whatever you think of someone who, whether they are a Ukrainian young man fighting, someone fleeing, someone who's found dead, someone who's been conscripted to, to fight for, for the Russian forces, there's someone's child. There's, there's someone's, someone's son. child, there's someone's mother, there's someone's father, there's someone's brother, there's someone's sister, but they need to be seen as human in the first place. The reason why we get to violate rights so easily is because people don't see them as human in the first place. They're humans. They're like us. They feel, they cry, they laugh, they have dreams, they have hopes like the rest of us. Maria, thank you so much for being on Empowered. Thank you so much for breaking this down and really impacting what these issues are all about. Thank you for having me.